introduction to Isaiah, and this week as we jump into Isaiah further, um, the first nine verses of the first chapter of Isaiah, so we're in Isaiah chapter 1, introduce the author, the time period of Isaiah's ministry, and the charge that God has brought against Judah, including its capital city, Jerusalem. So last week we learned about the kings under whose reign Isaiah prophesied. And so today we're going to be starting with the charge that God has against his elect. So we're going to read together verses 2 through 9 in Isaiah. Give you a moment to pull out your Bibles. All right, starting at verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, Children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, they are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left, like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. It's not too cheery. <laughs> but to summarize, the, the Lord's charge against Judah is, uh, first of all, rebellion, and second, corruption. And this wayward living of rebellion and corruption has resulted in utter desolation. Verse 2 begins with formal-sounding language as God calls the heavens and earth to witness his charges. Obedient nature is called as a witness to what God says about rebellious humanity. And this summons reminds us of Deuteronomy 4.26, where in giving the law and preparing the people to enter into the promised land, Moses calls the heavens and the earth to witness the promise that if the people persisted in sin, they would be expelled from the land of promise. And so obedient nature was a witness then, and it's a witness now as the charge comes. And this is a reminder that the Lord's prophetic warnings to Judah have a deep history. When God gave people their, his people their land, he gave them specific boundaries and told them how he wanted them to live so that they would be set apart from the other nations. And if they followed the Lord's ways, which they promised to do, they would be, have a great blessing on them and on their land. And if they chose disobedience, they could expect a curse instead. 
desolation and removal from their land would be the consequences of rebellion. And so Judah's rebellion in verses 2 and 3 is compared to a child who has rebelled against a father's loving care. They even lack the simple understanding that a donkey has to return to its master. And then in verses 5 and 6, Isaiah uses these really intense images to describe the spiritual condition of the nation. The first is of a bruised and wounded body left unattended. Think of a fallen soldier with no medic to come and help, or a child who has fallen off their bike with no one to come and pick them up and administer first aid. And the second image is of an abandoned hut in a harvest field. In ancient Israel, during the time of harvest, the workers would build temporary shelters to live in while they were out gathering the crops. And so now imagine that hut that was hurriedly put together has been left uninhabited for a few years. We see a similar sight when we're out driving through the country and we see a once proud barn that has now become dilapidated and sits in utter ruin. Meanwhile, Judah persists in its rebellion, unable to make the connection between their wicked ways and the disastrous consequences. Rebellion, at its heart, is a refusal to accept boundaries. The Holy One of Israel had, from the start, established boundaries and set forth consequences. But Judah has closed themselves off from this knowledge that brings life. Judah could be restored to life and health if they recognized the truth about the Lord's leadership and repented for their wrong thinking and living. And so there are four truths that they're not grasping about God and, and what he has called them to be. The first is that the Holy One of Israel is the only true God. They had given their affections to the disgusting idol worship of the neighboring nations. And instead of worship the way the Lord commanded of the one true God, they gave themselves over to their lusts and to the passions and the idols that they could control and think they could manipulate. The second thing they are not grasping is that the Holy One is creator. If God was able to rightly establish the boundaries of heaven and earth, he certainly had the same prerogative to establish wise boundaries for human living as well. And then third, the Holy One is the God of the covenant. A covenant is a formal relationship or a treaty. God himself committed himself to the people and in turn calls us to commit ourselves to him. And then fourth, the Holy One is a father. To him, humans are not mere subjects or objects. Rather, we are the focus of his love and compassion. And all of the boundaries that he gives his people are out of perfect love and relationship. They're not arbitrary. And so these truths are important for us, too. We live in a culture steeped in personal freedom. We are constantly being enticed into making choices that feel good to us without any regard to the consequences to ourselves or others or our community at large. Our culture encourages us to write our own story instead of appealing to the wisdom of our creator and to join his amazing story that is unfolding. And so in the midst of all of this bad advice, our culture misses the heart of God's character. Boundaries are not made to limit joy, 
but to create the context for human flourishing. And so Isaiah follows the opening charges for two ways for dealing with Judah's alienation from God. The wrong way of dealing with this alienation is hypocritical ritual. This undesirable option is presented in verses 10 through 15. And then the right way of responding to alienation from the Lord is repentance and changed living. And the consequences are clear. If we take the right way, we'll enjoy blessing. But the wrong way leads to destruction. And so let's read this section together, starting in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Judah has become completely complacent in their interactions with God. They are not immune to God's judgment simply because they are God's chosen people. As a father disciplines the child he loves, so they too will receive correction. They might be lulled into thinking that since they have God's revealed way of doing offerings and of temple worship, they are entitled to special treatment. But that is not the case. God gave them the rituals and the sacrifices to his people as a means of repentance and restoration of relationship. The sacrifices were a way to address unintentional sin. They were never meant to be a free pass for blatant transgression. And helpful clues how Judah went wrong are found in verses 15 through 17. In verse 15, their hands are described as being full of blood. And this probably means a couple of things. First, they are full of the blood of their religious sacrifices, but they are also full of the blood of innocent people. They want God to bless them, but they have become a curse to those living around them. Whether they recognize it or not, this nation of freed slaves has used their liberty to put others into bondage. They have forgotten that the covenant in which the sacrificial laws appear 
is the same covenant where God requires the ethical treatment of their neighbors. There is no room in God's covenant to persist in evil deeds and to expect ritual to deliver. The sacrificial system was not given for the purpose of procuring God's favor, but rather God provided it for those who had accepted God's grace and wanted to be in relationship with him, that are enjoying his covenant laws and his presence, and want to continue to do so despite unintentionally falling short of perfect performance. And so this attempt to use sacrifices and God's commanded celebrations to cover the deliberate breaking of God's law was a terrible violation of what the covenant was all about. But in God's mercy, God calls Judah out of this life of ritual hypocrisy. God is challenging them to do their best thinking about these practices. Empty ritual does not please the Lord. The Lord wants to lead his people into a life-changing encounter with him that naturally flows into the habits of everyday life. Judah has not been the only of God's people to perform rituals of worship while their heart was far from the Lord. In the 1500s, the Reformation came out of a church culture where indulgences could be bought, sin supposedly atoned for because of an offering towards the building campaign. If only that was that easy. And we can think of more recent times when it was the custom for land or factory owners to attend church regularly, to tithe, maybe even take part in church governance. Yet Monday through Saturday, they systematically oppressed all who worked for them. We too can be lulled into thinking that our rituals of worship and giving make God beholden to us. But the Holy One of Israel is a transcendent God. He cannot be manipulated by human activity. The Lord also cares how we use the other 90% of our economic means, and he calls for all of our time and energy to be submitted to his lordship. A token hour or two on Sunday is not a worthy offering for the one who set the planets in motion or numbers the hairs on our head. God's desire for us is a submissive heart, as described in Psalm 51. The sacrifice that God longs for most in the face of rebellious sin is a broken and contrite heart. And this humble offering, the Lord will not despise. As with the people of Judah, God's intention is that our worship practices and our religious activities would be symbolic of deeper realities in our hearts. God's design has always been for his abundant life to flow into the hearts of his people and through them into the lives of their neighbors, especially the marginalized. In recent centuries of American church history, there has been a polarization between those who pursue a social gospel and care about what's happening in society and um, think that if you can uh, reform society's structures, then everything will be better. And then on the other hand, there were those in the camp that the only thing that matters is an individual's heart and its sin. The proponents of that social gospel just wanted to change outward things and then people would be better. The personal sin camp thought that all was needed was individual salvation. Yet this passage in Isaiah makes it clear that these matters cannot be separated. 
Judah's sin is deep, and only the Lord can deliver them from their sin problem. But the cleansing of their sin should result in doing what is right. Hearts changed by God act like God. People being prepared for heaven make it their life's ambition to bring the kingdom of God to earth. Fervent prayer needs to be matched with righteous living and action on behalf of the vulnerable. Micah, one of Isaiah's prophetic contemporaries, put it this way in Micah 6.8, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Then in New Testament times, James says the same idea in 127. Religion that our Father accepts as pure and faultless, faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. One student of revivals through church history noticed how social reform always followed true repentance and acceptance as Jesus as Lord and Savior. And one of the many things I love about the Black and All Church family is our commitment that people have a thriving personal relationship with Jesus and that we would be engaged in ministry that helps the vulnerable and the oppressed. And one of the things I love is every Sunday we get to hear stories of how God is doing both of these things. As God's people, our passion for Jesus and our compassion for his people, especially the vulnerable, should grow and grow and grow. And while we don't have time this morning to read together the final ten verses of this chapter, their subject is the contrast of what God intended for Israel, what he planted, and then the contrast of what he actually got. Still, Judah's sin does not have the final word. God's judgment is always to remove all that hinders love and righteousness. Through the Lord's perfect leadership, he takes wayward people through the fires of redemption and into a glorious reality of faithfulness and righteousness. So we praise his name. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do not leave us stuck in our sin, that you did not leave Judah stuck in their sin, but that in your perfect time from Judah, you raised up a savior. And Lord, through his precious blood, our sin can be atoned for. And so, Lord, as we come into your presence, knowing that it is your blood alone that covers our sins and takes it as far as the east is from the west, that it's also your precious blood that makes us into a new people. And so, Lord, we pray that as we become more and more like you, that we would be your faithful children, that you would give us eyes to see the world as you see the world, that you would give us eyes to see the vulnerable, Lord, that we would have compassion, and that you would give us creative strategies in how we can help. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us a deep passion for Jesus and a compassion for all of his people and their needs around the world. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.